The Tom Woods Show. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to The Tom Woods Show. This is episode 2436. I'm delighted to be joined by our old friend, the great Keith Knight, who is managing editor at the Libertarian Institute, which is a great organization. He hosts the Don't Tread on Anyone podcast, which does not have quite as many episodes as the old man's podcast here, but it's doing very well. It has a whole darn bunch of them. And he is the author, and this is what brings him onto the program this particular time, of the brand new book, Domestic Imperialism, Nine Reasons I Left Progressivism. Keith, welcome back, my friend. Tom Woods, thank you so much for having me. Keith was a guest at my Christmas party a couple of weeks ago here in Florida, a few weeks ago here in Florida. And uh, he came all the way across the country. I don't, I don't know that if you necessarily give away where you live, but you came a long way to, to visit Old Woods on Christmas, and I appreciate that. Oh, yeah. Scott and I had a blast. We wanted to uh, get together and celebrate both Christmas and Diary of a Psychosis along with uh, this new book. So I, I had an absolute blast. Every one of your uh, Tom Woods Elite Show members was really pleasant to be around. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. So all you supporting listeners out there, you can come to my Christmas party every year, supportinglisteners.com. I don't even list it as a benefit. There's so many benefits of being a Tom Woods Show supporting listener. I can't even list them all. But you can check out some of it at supportinglisteners.com. Anyway, Keith, we're going to talk about your book. And of course, with a title like that, Nine Reasons I Left Progressivism, I'd like you to give me a few reasons you joined it. Probably the initial reason was there was a dichotomy in front of me. We have two groups of people, people who want to give you food, clothing, shelter, healthcare, education. And then there's another group of people who want to charge you for these things. They just create costs out of the thin, you know, blue sky. They they want you to have to work to achieve something, whereas other people want to give it to you. When you're facing this dichotomy, obviously it seems like, well, am I a nice person who's compassionate or am I somewhat of a jerk? So you can almost say, how is it? Maybe, you know, the billionaire class could believe something because they could easily buy this stuff. But how have so many millions of people, half the country more or less, been duped into thinking you should have to buy things instead of getting them for free. So when I was faced with that, I said, well, one, it seems like it's, you know, much more economically efficient to give people something instead of always having to work. That seems burdensome. And it seems much more compassionate to help or not to help. So uh, that was the dichotomy I was faced with. And that's why I probably joined. I also have to say, growing up in uh, I was in Phoenix, Arizona my whole life. I went to school here and often thought of as a red or purple state, but the, the schools that I went to were extremely blue. So I was always having in the back of my mind that America, good place now, however, uniquely uh, bad because of slavery and because of things like Jim Crow. So when we saw this name on the ballot, Barack Obama, we were all excited that this has to be the guy we support. This is the major hurdle that we're finally getting over this terrible racist, sexist, xenophobic past of ours by electing this, this guy. So it was both the thought of, you know, we're really achieving something. I'm really part of something unique in uh, the rearview mirror of history, uh, as it'll be seen by getting this guy elected. And it's the compassionate philosophy. Those are the main reasons I was attracted to it. Now, I would have more or less guessed that because I think that's why basically anybody joins it for the most part in, in the beginning. I think People innocently become part of it because it just seems 
as you say, it just seems like common sense. Why, if we have problem X and we have resources Y, we just apply resources Y to problem X. I mean, come on, what, what, what who, who would object to that? So you, you do talk about that a bit in your introduction. I would like to ask you, um, though, I mean, yes, I know that your book is, is about, you know, reason, things that challenge progressivism. But I want to know in your life specifically, what, was there a particular moment when suddenly you thought, I might not just be wrong about one particular thing, but my whole worldview might be wrong. Was there a particular moment or a particular event that caused you to have a thought like that? Well, one of the moments was watching the Glenn Beck show where he brought up the uh, portion of the Affordable Care Act another great thing. They're making it affordable, just more generosity. And he said that there's something called the individual mandate. This is where people, whether they want to or not, are required to purchase health insurance for themselves. Now, I remember thinking, well, people probably should do that, and they probably should eat healthy, exercise, be good neighbors, dress nice. Well, just because someone should do something, I don't think they should be forced. So this was the first time I ever considered that here is the difference between civilization and some sort of barbarism or tyranny where you have the right to claim ownership over other people. So that was the first time that it uh, really occurred to me. I got to say, getting that first paycheck and seeing the uh, involuntary deductions, that was uh, pretty surprising. But also when I was 14, I started my own uh, landscaping business. And the more we grew, the more difficult it was. I was 14 and the other guy was 16, and we would just go around and basically uh, offer our services to uh, mostly parents of the people who we went to school with. We we're earning very little amounts of money, and every time we tried to do something legitimate, the amount of bureaucracy was staggering. We'd have to go to uh, this place with uh, my coworkers. Mother, we had to start filling out things. We had to start declaring our income, and then I had to lie about my age, which I got caught, and that ended up blowing up the whole thing. And then we basically had to stop and do nothing. So uh, stopping of the entrepreneurial spirit was just so crushing at uh, the age of 14 that I also saw it as, well, far from the government being something here that's there to assist me and bring about flourishing, it seems like they're putting far more involuntary hurdles in my way of achieving what I want uh, than they are at, uh, at assisting me. So I think those were the initial things that I personally came into contact with, which really made me start uh, questioning things that I had supported. I was very uh, taken aback by an example you give early on in the book that you talked about. At, oh, geez, now I can't remember. Was it was it actually at the house? Was it in an event recently? But it was about the the attack on the Pulse nightclub in Orlando in 2016, and you talked about the motives of the person who did it, who did not actually realize that it was uh, a gay nightclub. He didn't realize that. But, of course, it was immediately portrayed as, well, this is an attack on homosexuals and all that. But what I think most people don't know is that he contacted the police and he was very, very explicit about what his motivations were. Now, there's no, there's no reason if you're a guy like that who's going to engage in an atrocity, I mean, why would you be shy about your motives? You know, like sometimes when we, when we quote what people's motives are, everybody's skeptical, but why would you? Why would that be the one thing you'd chicken out on? But you actually go ahead with the shooting people plan. I I rather take him at at his word, and he's very very blunt about exactly what his motivation is, and it has nothing to do with 
well, in the U.S., you have the Bill of Rights and you have uh, homosexual people, uh, whatever it is. Uh, That wasn't it at all. So can you tell the actual story? Because to me, this story and then how the U.S. government spun it says an awful lot about the nature, at least of the U.S. regime. So this was June 12th of 2016. You had Donald Trump leading in the polls and Barack Obama was the sitting president. So to show the reader how much progressivism is sort of entrenched, both the leading Republican, Donald Trump, and Barack Obama more or less said the same thing, that the Pulse nightclub murder, which uh, killed 49 people, injured 53. Um, Here is how Barack Obama summarized the events. He said, this was an attack on the LGBT community. Americans were targeted because we're a country that has learned to welcome everyone, no matter who you are or who you love, and hatred towards people because of sexual orientation, regardless of where it comes from, is a betrayal of what's best in us. So that was the sitting president who has access to the director of national intelligence, the FBI, the CIA. This was his takeaway, that the lesson we learn from this massacre is don't hate homosexuals, nor should we be fearful of homosexuals. Well, the goal of terrorism is not to conceal your motives. The goal of terrorism is to bring attention to something that otherwise you thought wasn't getting attention because it's sort of like a shortcut to fame for a number of people. So he calls 911 while he's holding the survivors hostage and explicitly says, you have to tell America to stop bombing Syria and Iraq. They're killing a lot of innocent people. What am I to do here when my people are getting killed over there? You need to stop the U.S. airstrikes. You have to tell the U.S. government to stop bombing. They are killing too many children. They are killing too many women. I feel the pain of people getting killed in Syria and Iraq. They need to stop bombing Syria and Iraq. So this actually is something that was happening in 2016. People might not have really known that Syria was on uh, the hit list. Uh, According to the Council on Foreign Relations, the U.S. government dropped 24,287 bombs on Iraq and Syria that year in 2016 alone. So here we have an explicit example of violence being perpetrated in response to the federal government initiating violence against other people. And The Intercept actually did some research on this, and it turns out that 90% of those killed in these drone striking operations under Barack Obama were people who were not the intended target. Also, to qualify to be an intended target, they usually say any military age male. So that's any male 16 years or older. So instead of saying this is a genuine divide that we have in the world, people who achieve their ends violently and people who achieve their ends peacefully, they made it about sexual orientation or who you're attracted to just completely blowing it. This is the guy who ran on closing Guantanamo Bay, getting out of these wars that evil George Bush started so he can carry on his father's evil legacy and only caring about the military industrial interests. They gave this progressive guy the platform to really, you know, stand up for the people. And this is exactly what happened. So this really, to me, uh, I didn't know about this till years later. Uh, It had just come across my screen and I said, well, I'm so sick of following everything that the news media tells me to. It wasn't years later until I actually found out the truth about this situation. But um, yeah, coming across this, it was just shocking that this evidence was right here. There was a primary source, but it never occurred to me. I found one clip of a woman who was inside the club, and this was a local news in Florida where she had said, yeah, he kept saying that America's bombing his country, and he was really upset about that. And uh, then, you know, the SWAT team came in and killed him. 
And other than that, we didn't get the truth from anyone on this. So this is the classic progressive false divide when there really is a true divide to be had. Yeah, so that, to me, uh, speaks volumes because it's typical of the regime that it does something that then leads to negative consequences. But rather than ever come clean about this, it always finds some fall guy. Uh, it, it always finds some, distract you with something else. So instead of saying, well, look, you know, we really need to have this overseas empire, but you all have to understand that it is going to come with the occasional cost. I mean, some people are going to get angry about it. They're going to do crazy things. We're never going to have, they're never going to have that conversation with us. Instead, it was, oh my goodness, look, he didn't like homosexuals. Like, but so, so that diverts attention from the issue at hand. But it's not just there. Obviously, we've, we continue to see with rising prices, people saying uh, that has nothing to do with us, uh, with the, the government or the central bank. That's, that's greedy companies. In 2008, it was predatory lenders. It's always somebody, isn't it? It's always somebody. It's always somebody unpopular. Uh, it's, always, it's always somebody the public views as wicked. Uh, they're responsible for this. We were merely innocent bystanders. Oh, and by the way, that institution that monopolizes the creation of legal tender money had absolutely nothing to do with the with an economic downturn. You know, that's that's the that's it. And if if those types of explanations satisfy you, then you're probably not going to be prompted to look into libertarianism. Well, yeah, it seems like no matter what happens, if, you know, we're kept safe, well, that just proves that we need a heavy footprint in the Middle East, Ben Shapiro's words, heavy footprint in the Middle East. And if things are bad, well, that proves that we need to really get serious about this war on terrorism. So no matter what happens, uh, COVID numbers go up. Well, we need to have lockdowns. COVID numbers go down. Well, see, this is the importance of having lockdowns and mandates. There's no way to actually falsify this. And it's very classic that the elephant in the brain, so to speak, will attempt to rationalize almost everything that's in your self-interest. So it's not like we have this, well, we need to elect the right people or, you know, just uh, erect a new party. While that could be, you know, great in the short run, as people like Javier Malay have shown us that there can be tremendous benefits to that. As far as long-term solutions goes, it is a bit of a fool's errand to give people a monopoly on money creation, the right to conscript, the right to tax, the right to have uh, compulsory education, and say, these people need to be regulated because once every four years, people are going to get a one in a million vote between you know two lying psychopaths. That's just not going to happen. So progressivism in and of itself is a uh, bit of a fool's errand. And it's exactly what we should expect, just as corporations always want more power. At least they have the genuine check and balance of allowing people to disassociate with them when they stop creating value. Politicians face no such check and balance in uh, society. So that's why progressivism was just so vitally important that I stopped having that as part of my life. All right, let's move on. Uh, you have a lot of material in here. And I like that you, you kind of write the way I do in that there's no fluff in a Keith Knight book. There is no waste of your time. There are no pages and pages of, of, of ranting with, without facts or statistics. You feel like every single sentence has to be worth the reader's while. That's the impression I get reading your book, that you don't want to waste anybody's time. Let's, let's get the information out there. So uh, what you learn in a Keith Knight book which will not take you that long to read. Uh, you, I mean, honestly, you're going to learn 10 times what you would, you would learn from a, you know, from a book um, by almost anybody, to be honest with you, by almost anybody. And, and especially, oh my gosh, these, 
I think about the books Sean Hannity used to write. You know, like when he was a big radio guy, and all the right-wing radio people, they all had to write books. And oh my gosh, what a waste of time. It was just platitudes from start to finish with three statistics thrown in, okay? And I would get, that's what I would get in two sentences of a Keith Knight book. <laughs> so so I want to talk about the your section on government failure because that's obviously meant to be a, a, a playful reworking of the concerns about alleged market failure. We're supposed to worry, again, notice that we're supposed to worry about the, the failure of markets and markets I know are boogeymen that we're all supposed to hate, but markets, that just means uh, a, a, you know, a, a network of individuals cooperating with each other is what a market is. People buying and selling, making offers, people accepting or declining offers. Uh, that's really all a marketplace is. A market is just you and me. And so to be concerned about market failure, to be concerned that voluntary interaction, you know, boy, there's a lot of failure there, but not to have a corresponding concept of government failure, failure of an institution that is inherently coercive uh, shows there's a bias in, in in the way economics is taught to begin with. Yes. So thank you for saying that uh, there's a lot of information condensed in this. I remember AJP Taylor once saying, most history that people learn is 90% true and 100% useless. And I go, that is exactly what I want to uh, be the antidote to. I want everything to be, you know, generally useful to uh, to, to the reader. So Tom Hartman is a pretty popular progressive, and he said there is one fatal flaw in libertarianism, which just takes the whole thing down, and that's why it's barely even worth mentioning. And uh, this would be the existence of imperfect knowledge and competition, which can be generally summarized as market failure. So uh, because when you go to buy a car, the car salesman and the owner of the company have a lot more knowledge than the consumer. This asymmetry exists. Therefore, a state is justified in coercively intervening on behalf of the customer and sometimes the producer if the producer has to face foreign competition for car sales. Okay, so the question is, does this exist? One, of course, experts in the field have more knowledge than the average person, but does it uniquely apply? This is a constant uh, propaganda tactic of progressives. They say there's profit seekers in the private sector as if politicians and cops and soldiers and teachers are just unpaid volunteers. Yeah, th there's always profit-seeking everywhere uh, under anything where they'll say, well, there's imperfect knowledge. So the question is, can we take this example and apply it to the coercive sector? Obviously, not all voters are informed. We have a great amount of knowledge asymmetry when it comes to the people who have access to confidential documents that we're not even allowed to see. And if you try to show it to us, like Edward Snowden or Julian Assange did, they end up putting you in a cage or making you run for your life so you can run away from the land of the free, which they love to constantly brag about. When it comes to something like greed, they also say that this is market failure because you don't have people, you know, sort of acting both on goodwill. You have people in this sort of doggy dog mentality, greed, greedily going at each other. Well, um, there is an election going on right now, pretty greedy. You have politicians constantly slandering each other, trying to figure out who can get the most votes. One person wins, one person loses. That is just about as greedy as it gets. Somehow, some way, I don't know when this happened, but the voluntary sector got the name greedy, 
and the coercive sector, which you can't opt out of funding, got the idea that it has something to do with social cooperation and dealing with the greater good. Uh, They also say that, uh, well, government, uh, it needs to step in uh, just in case there are externalities within the free market. This is where you purchase a car from me and then you drive the car, which pollutes the air that other people breathe. Those people did not consent to it. Therefore, the state has to intervene. Notice that the existence of a state doesn't make this externality go away. Also, the state itself is a great externality. We constantly have politicians doing things without the consent of hundreds of millions of their alleged constituents and coercively imposing it. That in and of itself is the greatest externality. The final one that we get is the short-sightedness. You go in the free market, you just want to make a ton of money, and you don't care what's left behind you. This was Hans Hoppe's great contribution to the idea of democracy, where much for the same reason people don't take the time to change in oil in uh, change the oil in a rent a car. Uh, very few politicians make sure that the state is uh, upkept in such a way that it's going to be beneficial for future generations. They're only there for a few years. They have to extract all the wealth, power, social status, and influence they can get until they're kicked out or until they can get a permanent job in the deep state. So we constantly see this short uh, sightedness all around us. You have. Woodrow Wilson declaring war against Germany in 1917, 116,000 American deaths, uh, 2.8 million conscripts, you know, getting shot at, getting PTSD, getting their limbs blown off. And it was very beneficial for him uh, at the time, along with uh, Colonel Edward House, to gain that amount of social status and have that uh, amount of influence in uh, the Treaty of Versailles. He never had to face consequences for anything uh, that, that he did. This basically applies to any politicians who advocate Wars. Lyndon Johnson uh, basically pushed and fabricated the uh, Gulf of Tonkin incident, the August 4th uh, incident of 1964, which never happened, justifying uh, further intervention into Vietnam, leading to things like Operation Rolling Thunder, Operation Bail Roll, the mass bombing and murder of millions of people in Vietnam, Laos, and Cambodia. And because of the short-sightedness of politicians, they never had to pay a price. And actually, they're seen as heroes by, uh, by many people. So all of these things do apply to the state as well as the market. But as Mike Munger points out, voters are way worse than consumers, even though they're the same people. But the consumer has to bear the cost of his bad decision making. That's why you're much more uh, benefit. It's much more beneficial to have people acting as consumers where they have to bear the price, where they get the reward, as opposed to being voters where they never feel the pain and seldom will apologize for advocating policies that uh, ruin the lives of millions of people. I'm glad, you know, I was sitting here as you were giving your answer thinking, well, I'll point out certain aspects of this problem (laughs) then you cover them all. So, all right, well, on to the next thing. you have a, 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 a discussion in here on the uh, minimum wage. And people might think, oh, this is such a tiresome libertarian concern because after all, the, the real value of, a, of the minimum wage has been eroded by inflation over the years. It's not really a big deal. And who cares if the minimum, fl- minimum wage uh, goes up? And for me, the main, the main problem with it is that it just shows a, a lack of understanding of what makes wages rise. Like p- people who think, that the key is we need to force people at gunpoint to pay workers more. I think don't understand wages are not just arbitrarily set. 
Um, so the, the I, that that drives me crazy. But also, I th- I don't think people realize a point that you make in the book, which is frankly just how few Americans actually work for the minimum wage. Yes, it turns out I don't have the number off the top of my head, but uh, according to the Bureau of Labor Statistics, a very small percentage. One point four percent. I got it from your book. Okay. Yes. Thank <laughs> you. I promise I got the citation there. Um, when it uh, comes to things like full-time work, it's important to define what counts as work because, as I say in the title, college essentially for me, well, that's actually misleading because uh, I was kicked out of uh, college on three different occasions, but college in general for someone could be four years of work for $0 an hour. So if we start with the progressive claim that all work should demand $15 an hour because you're exploiting the person, you're benefiting from them, Well, the universities are getting money from the student, and the student does tons of work both in school and tons of homework. So university, basically all schooling, K through 12 violates their child labor law, and then the uh, university system violates their minimum wage law because you have people performing labor and not getting directly compensated. So the question is, uh, should universities or uh, any form of schooling be abolished for the protection of the students. And my position is obviously not. There's a reason so many people choose to voluntarily do such a thing so they could gain some skills so they can be more profitable in the future. And at the time, they're usually living with parents or living with someone else who's able to take on the bills, so they might not need it at that point. So the point is, is something that progressives actively advocate, go to college, do this, They're telling people to work for $0 an hour in compensation and then get all high and mighty when they come across a small business or some other organization, which is saying that, uh, well, we can pay you $1 an hour or $5 an hour. The most amount of value that I got was uh, in a uh, two to three week internship at a uh, tech company where I didn't make any money. They gave me food and gas money. But getting that on the job experience is so valuable because that's what builds your skills. That's what makes you more marketable in the marketplace among uh, different employers. That's how wages rise. Now, according to the progressive worldview, we should see more or less something like 100% of people getting the minimum wage because corporations just do the bare minimum absolutely necessary. So how is it that such a small percentage of workers get this minimum wage? It turns out, research by uh, Ludwig von Mises in his book, Planning for Freedom, uh, Milton Friedman in his book, Free to Choose, they make the case that uh, wages rise as uh, the result of a uh, couple factors. One is capital investment by employers. I really saw this when I worked at Walmart. We had a uh, scanning system that was very, very complex, and people would send us orders. We'd scan them, get the list of orders. You'd know where to go in the store to get the item. Then we'd give the uh, person... Uh, their groceries uh, in the back of the store. Well, one day, this really, really, really expensive system, these things had to be probably like $2,000 each. And the software, heaven knows how much it costs in capital investment. One day, this went down. So we had to do everything with a pen and paper. And I I honestly believe we might have done 10% of the sales that we were able to use when we had access to uh, those things just because it was down for a day. So this really shows how each worker is more valuable because they're more productive as a result of capital investment. The second thing which Milton Friedman points out is the importance of competition among 
employers. So the employee is not necessarily protected because there's something like occupational safety and health administration. As I show in the book, at place, uh, workplace deaths were uh, drastically decreasing before the existence of OSHA. Uh, second, he says the reason that we see wages higher than the minimum wage is because of competition amongst employers. Knowing that there's this threat that I could leave, go elsewhere, and take my productivity with me, it gives the employer the self-interest incentive to give me the wage that uh, he thinks I'm worth. So uh, this is very important because a lot of times we're seen as, oh, you just think corporations are going to be, oh, so nice and generous. Okay, well, it turns out just as the customers are self-interested when they come in the store, not because they love me, but because they want the products, employees are self-interested and the corporations are as well. But the free market allows people to constantly harmonize these self-interests by uh, making sure that they can't get a penny out of your pocket unless you voluntarily give it to them. They can't get a second of your time unless you choose to freely associate with them. So uh, that, again, is why uh, the state's not only uh, unnecessary, it constantly makes people uh, more impoverished because it stops people from getting that uh, on-the-job experience. That means there's fewer employers because you're raising the cost of employing people. Customers have fewer places to shop. Uh, places are less beautiful because you have uh, much more Walmarts. So this leads to the very oligopolies that progressives are uh, constantly complaining about. So it it is just worse all around when some people claim the right to own the bodies of other people. Did you happen to see at least the the one now semi-notorious clip of the interview between Glenn Greenwald and, and Tucker Carlson not long ago? Did you happen to see that? Unfortunately, I did. Yeah, so the, that was a good answer. I thought you were saying, unfortunately, I missed it. I thought, oh, I'll have to fill him in. But I'll fill in the audience. The the you know I, I like Glenn Greenwald. Um, I... I I read one of his books. I, I follow him. I think he's a very valuable and important voice. And I think Tucker Carlson is downright heroic. I, I really, really respect the guy. But nobody's perfect. And sometimes when, when these two agree on something, uh, it's, it's a bad thing. Sometimes it's a good thing, but sometimes it's a bad thing. And they were having a conversation about the economy. And Greenwald was leading in with, yeah, you know, all this libertarian economics. I think people are looking around and they're seeing that you know, Raytheon is getting richer and richer and they're wondering where this all goes. And I thought, Raytheon getting richer and richer would not be happening in a libertarian system. You know, like, what What are you talking about? What does this mean? Uh, and and then it, it ended up getting diverted into a, an argument about um, how how ugly our society is becoming, that that it's it's the, the aesthetics of it are, are poor. But we can all agree on that. But the thing is, it's hard to blame that on libertarianism when we haven't actually implemented it. That that is the real thing. We we haven't actually implemented it. There, this, but this is not. We're not living in a libertarian system at at this point. Every major thing the libertarians have demanded, we've just been ignored. <laughs> they just pay no attention to us. Unfortunately, you the way they were talking, you would have thought that in 1972, Milton Friedman became dictator of America and just has refused to get off the throne since then. Uh, Tucker Carlson said that uh, this sort of libertarian economic policy was completely rationalized after the rich saw that it was in their interest. So notice immediately they're not differentiating between wealth that's gained voluntarily by people like George Eastman, who made the camera much more accessible to the average person, uh, Cornelius Vanderbilt getting steamship access to the average person, Henry Ford getting the automobile accessible to the average person, Steve Jobs, Jeff Bezos. None of that. They just say, the rich. 
this is a classic progressive move where it's not like, you know, giving you a state, obviously, the, the Nicolas Maduro and Hugo Chavez were very rich as well. So that even that is not unique to the free market. The fact that they don't even differentiate between voluntary wealth and coercive wealth is how they can make a statement so ridiculous as to say, well, look at all this Reaganomics, rich get richer libertarianism. They constantly conflate those things intentionally. And they pin it on Raytheon getting all this money when there is a culprit that we could pin it on. Maybe the progressives that, in spite of all state atrocities, still say, well, the government should tax more. Well, the government should regulate more. But uh, I'm against a lot of the things they do with all this power that I advocate that they have. This is literally as evil. Knowing about the mass murder campaigns of the Middle East, Vietnam, Korea, the bombing of Dresden, Hiroshima, Operation Meeting House, killing 100,000 civilians in Tokyo in a couple days. This is as bad as saying, I want the Ku Klux Klan to have a ton of money and a ton of power, but I think they should be really nice and we should elect a good grand wizard. It is literally that ridiculous when it comes to what they're advocating. So yeah, uh, Raytheon uh, having all this money and power, you could easily put uh, at the feet of progressives who have had a lot more power than the Milton Friedmans and Ludwig von Mises of the world. There's also a section in your book where you uh, you say a little something about the, the objection that in the society you want, the poor would X, Y, Z. So X in this case is have no access to education. They would just be um, you know, illiterate and helpless. And I, I might point out that that's kind of like what we have now. <laughs> I mean... I wouldn't want to go to any of these schools. I'm not going to learn anything. Complete waste of my time. I'm going to be probably traumatized there, chances are. So I'm not sure this accusation sticks, but I think for a lot of people, it seems like a a death blow to libertarianism. I I don't want people to have no schools. Oh, and uh, I want there uh, to be schools as well. But one, they should be voluntary. And two, you make the exact point. By them saying, well, I can't believe people are so uninformed to have elected someone like Donald Trump or, oh, all these people online, they spread these, you know, debunked conspiracy theories, as they tell us Putin installed our previous president without a shred of evidence. But uh, yeah, they're the ones who are constantly saying that society is so uneducated after the majority of us have gone through 12 years of state uh, indoctrination. So what I did was I uh, tried to do some research and I came across the research of a woman, Pauline Dixon. She wrote, uh, she has two studies. One is titled, Why the Denial? Low-Cost Private Schools in Developing Countries and Their Contributions to Education. So notice she doesn't say, Why the Denial uh, Schooling in the Hamptons? She says, let me take the worst people on earth if it can work here. And by work, we mean uh, generally yield a uh, high degree of utility for parents and children alike, well, then it is something that can be generally embraced. So before this, I actually used two examples of how the Statue of Liberty, something uh, beautiful that uh, I'm sure Tucker Carlson would also find beautiful, uh, was voluntarily funded along with the Salisbury Cathedral in England. So now we can have beauty in the voluntary sector and we can get things like churches, which so many people can go to totally for free. I have been to many churches and I have never been charged to, uh, to to walk in the door. So we see this, something that people go to one day a week, they're able to voluntarily fund and have a building and have a staff. So if people are going somewhere five days a week, they might find more value in it. 
And there might be a incentive on the other side of the equation for the teachers and administrators to actually produce a much higher quality product. So Pauline Dixon summarizes her findings uh, in this study. Private education is good for the poor, a study of private schools serving the poor in low-income countries. She says, the majority of poor parents chose private unaided schools for their children. Just the fact that when you give people choice, they opt for the competitive voluntary sector is so important because the progressive is constantly saying, we need to empower people and let them vote. Well, look, if your right to vote was taken away, there would be some psychological damage, but it would have no effect on the actual outcome of any election. Where you send your kids to school, having school choice, that drastically changes every aspect of your life and the child's life. So they want to give you tons of choice in something that doesn't matter and no choice in something that actually determines the outcome of your life. Dixon goes on. Teacher costs are significantly less in private, unhated schools than in government schools. Gender equity is maintained in private, uh, unaided school enrollment. School enrollment is underestimated. Free primary education serves to crowd out private schools and does not increase overall enrollment. Better pupil-teacher ratios prevail in private, unaided than in government schools. More teaching is occurring in private than in government schools. Every single thing you can imagine that we get the objections of. She went to third world countries and found that the voluntary sector was uh, better able to achieve these ends than the coercive sector. All we have to do is take the progressive claim that they're always giving us. They say, well, monopolies are really bad because with monopolies, you have higher costs and lower quality than you otherwise would under competition. So we need antitrust laws. The same thing applies for the state having a monopoly on compulsory education. They don't have the incentive to really get the good information out there. I, f- I forget uh, the statistic that I had found from Corey DeAngelis. He cites um, the uh, National Education Foundation. I know I put it in the book. It's something like spending on education has increased uh, adjusted for inflation, something like 280 percent since 1960. And there are very few results to brag about. In fact, the results are so bad after 12 years of schooling, progressives say, well, obviously you have to go to college. You didn't do much for 13 years. All you did was everything we asked five hours a day, you know, five days a week for uh, 10 months out of the years uh, for, for the last 12 years. They know it's so bad that they're constantly advocating you go to college afterwards because they know how little you gained in there. So uh, those are empirical realities along with the moral arguments as to uh, why uh, the education sector should uh, be brought under the volunteerism umbrella. Do you think most people are reachable? There's no right or wrong answer to this. I'm just curious. (laughs) Well, uh, when I see how much uh, things have changed in my life, um, being a progressive, now being a libertarian, uh, being a... uh, you know, drug addict for four years and then uh, being able to turn my life around. I think it is amazing to see uh, how much people can change when they surround themselves with the right people and uh, start uh, developing the correct habits. So, uh, yes, I actually do. Um, As I said in our uh, previous conversation, I think uh, the really important things are social proof and repetition. So the more people uh, claim to be part of something, the more people want to be a part of it. So the more people uh, who are able to, you know, proudly identify as libertarian or just wear it as a side label, as our mutual friend Alan Mosley likes to say, I'm not, you know, doing a libertarian show. I'm just doing a late night show. And I happen to be a 
libertarian as well. So just, you know, sort of giving people that green light that it's okay to be on our side makes many more people than we otherwise would have uh, want to join us. And then having someone who you can really admire, who really stands up to your enemies. You got almost the entire uh, GOP saying that George W. Bush lied us into wars, which got, you know, our soldiers killed and killed tons of civilians, something you never would have imagined that they'd say, and they're anti-CIA, and a lot of them are now on board with abolishing the FBI, supporting uh, Vivek Ramaswamy. And it's not because I don't know if uh, they read a lot of books to come to that conclusion, but what happened was someone took on their enemies, Donald Trump, said, my enemies are your enemies. They're coming after me. I'm just uh, in their way, but they're really trying to get to you. And he gave all these people a green light to completely do a 180 on all these institutions that they previously admired. So, um, yes, I think uh, the message can be sold uh, correctly. You know, people like Javier Malay really just uh, inspire me with uh, his ability to get on TV, make the unapologetic case against collectivism, really inspire people and uh, show people that uh, these ideas are uh, worth getting behind. So I think so. Yes. Well, that's actually kind of a nice white pill to finish with because sometimes it's it's very grim and nah, forget it. There's no, there's no hope. But but you are somebody who's been through quite a bit and has has come out um, really strong. And so you, you, what your testimony is, is is very valuable. So of course, as always, I, I want to recommend that uh, folks listen to Keith Knight because I, I you know I, I, I don't want to call you an up and comer, Keith, because I almost I feel like that's condescending towards you. Um, you have already come up. And uh, I, you're, I, I don't know exactly what reading regimen you had, but you've learned a lot. Um, you, you know more about this material than a lot of people who have been around this movement a lot longer than you have. So I highly recommend uh, Keith's book, Domestic Imperialism, Nine Reasons I Left Progressivism. You'll find it linked down here in the description of the video, also on the show notes page, tomwoods.com slash 24... 36. So thank you very much, Keith. Tom, thanks for having me. And thank you, ladies and gentlemen. Become a smarter libertarian in just 30 minutes a day. Visit tomwoods.com to subscribe to the show for free, and we'll see you next time. Like the sound of the Tom Woods Show? My audio production is provided by Podsworth Media. Check them out at podsworth.com.